You're listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Well, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Today we'll be looking at three verses. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 9 and 10. Earlier this week, I was at my kids' school waiting to pick them up uh, when I struck up conversation with two ladies. One of the ladies there uh, has two daughters, and she was happily announcing to the families that were gathered there at the school that she was expecting twin boys. The other lady who was there in this little circle where we were huddling and talking had three girls or has three girls herself, congratulated the expectant mother and gave her a big hug. But after all the congratulations were done and the excitement was over with, the expectant mother kind of her face turned from one of joy and anticipation to one of fear and trepidation. And she says, I have no idea how to raise boys. The other mother replied as a mother of three girls herself, says, neither do I. And that's when they, knowing that I have four boys, both turned their gaze upon me with eager expectation. Now, there are many things I could have said. Your life's over. (laughs) Or say farewell to peace and quiet. But in the end, I, I settled on something like this. I said, well, they say boys are hard to raise early, but easier later. Girls are easy to raise early, but hard later. And as soon as I said this, they both looked at me with knowing smiles and said, you are so right. But was I? We, we live in a time of so much gender confusion that the differences between boys and girls and men and women are increasingly becoming lost. In fact, there are many people who would take offense at me or anyone else making general statements about what boys or girls are like. They would say that these are artificial, social constructs that we impose unfairly on on people and incorrectly define their identity. And, you know, as much as that's the language of the day and there's problems with it, I, I can certainly relate to that. I grew up as a little boy who didn't fit in with most generalizations about boys. I was actually someone who was easy early but harder later. You know, when I was a a, a little boy, when I was upset about something, all my parents had to do was feed me, and I'd be happy. Um, And uh, it it wasn't until later on where I had many different crises in my identity and, you know, thinking about what matters in life that my parents had to invest a lot of time and effort into raising me. And yet, I, I can still affirm that there are certain characteristics that are generally true about boys and certain characteristics that are generally true about girls. As with all things, there are exceptions, but that doesn't make the general conclusions any less true. In our text today, the Apostle Paul is going to make some general observations about what men and women tend to do generally. And the the temptation for us is to respond to a text like this, like the rest of our culture, and say, those generalizations aren't fair, or they're not accurate, and therefore I do not accept them. Well, if that's you, then I encourage you to remember what we are about to spend our time addressing. We are not just addressing any book on 
boys and girls or men or women or parenting or conflict or whatever. We are, we are addressing the very word of God. And the Apostle Paul is not just writing as a historical figure who was bound by the values of his time. He is writing as a man who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the very words of God. He is writing with God's authority. His insights about men and women, therefore, represent God's very own thoughts about this topic. And if anyone knows what it means to be a man and to be a woman, it's God who made us male and female in his image. I I believe that if we approach our text today with this attitude, with one of reverent submission to the wisdom of God, we'll be able to learn much about what it looks like for men and for women to be part of a church. You know, we remember that the church, as 1 Corinthians 3 verse 15 says, the church is God's household. God is our father and we are his sons and daughters. This is his household, which we call the church. And as the head of our household, God has every right to tell us how we are to behave in his household. And so the challenge for us is to listen attentively as our father lovingly leads us. And we are to submit to him willingly and joyfully as he addresses what life looks like in the church. You know, God tells us not only what to believe, but what to do. He tells us how we are to handle conflict. He tells us how we should wisely spend our time. He even tells us in what manner we should dress. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. And that's going to seem strange to us. I want to acknowledge at the outset, because we live in a radically individualistic culture that values self-expression and demeans submission. Fashion, your clothing choices that you make every day, is one of the more valued means of self-expression for many. But if you're a Christian, you know that you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to God. You no longer live for the glory of your own name. You live for the glory of Christ's name as one of his representatives and the desire of every believer who has come to know the grace of God in Christ is to glorify God in all our lives, in what we say and what we do and even in what we wear. (laughs) So let's read our verses together. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. This is the word of the Lord. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or perils or costly, uh, costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The title of this sermon is Clothing and Quarrels. Clothing and Quarrels. My aim today is to show you that God wants us to please him in how we pray and in what we wear. God wants us to please him in how we pray and in what we wear. We're going to break up our text today into two points. First, the prayer lives of godly men. 
And second, the good works of godly women. First, the prayer lives of godly men. I mean, our text today is not complicated. It's pretty straightforward. There's two sets of instructions. One's for men and the other is for women. And if you would boil down the instructions to their simplest level, uh, God's instruction to men is don't fight, pray. And God's instruction to women is don't be vain, do good works. On the surface, they may seem to be very different sets of instructions, but at their heart, they're really the same because they both address the sinful tendency to want to outdo other people. For men, they want to outdo one another by the force of their arguments. For women, they want to outdo one another by the beauty of their appearance. And so we see that the the essence of the struggle for both men and women is the same. It's rooted in sinful pride. It comes from thinking that you're better than others and wanting to be recognized as such. It's the desire to receive glory from other people rather than give glory to God. This may find different expressions in men and in women, but the sinful root is the same. That's actually why uh, men can struggle with vanity and women can struggle with anger. The, the, The root can produce the same sinful fruit. We see women struggling with anger in Numbers 12, Miriam, the sister of Moses, uh, opposing uh, her brother who had been God's chosen instrument because she wanted to have the same recognition as him. We see it in Philippians chapter four as two Christian women, Euodia and Syndicate, are embroiled in a relational conflict and the apostle Paul goes out of his way to appeal to them to be at peace with one another. And so whether you're a man or a woman, If anger is something that you struggle with, you need to listen up because God is addressing you. But at the same time, we can't miss the obvious point here, which is that God is specifically addressing men in verse eight. God himself, as the head of our household, as our loving, all-wise father, wants to take a moment and speak to his sons. And therefore, all the men here, whether you believe that you struggle with anger or not, would do well to listen as our Heavenly Father addresses us. What does he have to say to us? Well, first, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. You know, if you're a father here, I don't know what you want for your sons, whether it's academic achievements or athletic prowess. The thing that God wants for his sons is that they would be devoted to prayer. And when you think about what the essence of prayer is, which is communion with God, it's relationship with God, talking to him, thanking him, calling on him for help, trusting him and expressing that dependence upon him. What God is saying is he wants men to have a personal, close relationship with him. He wants to be close to his boys, He's not interested in merely being the strong, silent provider who speaks through his actions and has very little to say. He wants to hear from us, and he wants to speak with us. But when and where, what does that look like? Well, verse eight says, I desire then that in every place, in every place, the men should pray. We, we don't just God is calling us not just to commune with him in the quietness of solitude or at a church prayer meeting. Whether you are at home or at church, 
in the car or in the grocery store by yourself or surrounded by people, God's desire is that you would commune with him through prayer in every place. That's the defining characteristic of the godly man. The defining characteristic of the godly man is prayer. It's not how well you can debate theology. It's not how heavy the weights you can lift. The skill, discipline, and practice that God most wants us to cultivate is prayer. That is the distinguishing mark of a man who pleases God. Now I want to emphasize that that this, of course, doesn't say the opposite, which is that God doesn't care about women praying. Uh, of course, that's, that's not true. The entire context, as we saw two weeks ago, is one of prayer. In verses 1 to 7, God's calling the entire church to pray, to, for all people to pray for all people. And, and in the context, as he's talking about the, the assembled gathering of local churches gathered to worship him, he's talking about men and women together. He, he obviously wants women to pray as well. But here in verse 8, our Heavenly Father zeroes in on his sons because he wants us to lead in prayer. And he also knows how difficult it is for us to do that. He knows how easy it is for us to, to compromise our prayer lives. We pride ourselves in being self-sufficient and strong so we don't cry out to him in prayer. Or we busy ourselves with our little hobbies and projects so we don't take time for personal communion with God. We see ourselves as our own saviors, the ones who are gonna fix our own problems rather than turning to him who will empower us for service. But men, we must pray in every place and at every time. Because as verse three said about prayer, this is, this is good. Prayer is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. The second thing our text says is that we are to pray lifting holy hands. You could say this, when it comes to prayer, posture matters. When I'm praying with my kids at bedtime, uh, you know, we're usually reading a bunch of books and then we're singing a song together and we pause and pray and usually my sons are sprawled out on the ground and I, I call them, okay, sons, boys, we're going to pray now. I need you to sit up, put your hands together, and give God your full attention. Posture matters. When we're about to begin our pastoral prayers in our Sunday services, many of us uh, who may have been slouching at the time or just sitting a little casually, we, we sit up and we bow our heads. Why is that? Because we want the posture of our bodies to reflect and even to lead the posture of our hearts. Because what, what we do with our bodies affects what we feel in our hearts. We don't just see that in the Bible. We, we see it in human institutions and traditions as well. I mean, last Saturday, we were all at a beautiful wedding. Uh, before the bride walks in, uh, the, the pastor leading the service calls the congregation to rise, to stand and give respect to the bride as she enters into the wedding ceremony. I remember I used to work for judges, the, the judges of the Superior Court of Justice, and I got to spend time in their uh, private offices called judicial chambers, and when you encounter them in that context, they seem like very ordinary men and women. But then when you go into the, the courtroom, and everyone's talking, and they're waiting for the judge to enter, and then you hear those knocks on the door, and everyone says, rise, everybody stands. 
And the judge walks in and ascends that dais. Everyone's just sitting, standing there silently observing. You feel a different level of respect than if we had just remained seated. The Bible speaks of the same sorts of things in the Old Testament. At times it talks about bowing down before God in reverence. It talks about kneeling in submission. It even talks about falling flat on your face, lying on the ground in fear. It talks about standing at attention with respect. That's what happened in, uh, when, when Solomon dedicates the temple. He kneels and the rest of the congregation stands. The posture that Paul chooses to emphasize here is the lifting of hands. The lifting of hands. And there is a close connection between the lifting of hands and prayer in the Old Testament. Psalm 28. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Psalm 134. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Psalm 141. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Lamentations chapter 3. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Now the Bible never explains uh, specifically why we should do this, lift up our hands in prayer. But from my own experience, uh, when, when I lift up my hands in prayer, whether it's speaking words of prayer to God or, or singing words of prayer during worship, it can symbolize a number of, of things. It, it symbolizes offering myself to the Lord. Lord, I am yours. It, 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 it can symbolize surrendering to his will. My, my hands are up. I am, I am vulnerable before you. Do what you want with me. It, it symbolizes opening up my heart to God's grace. I'm not, I'm not standing there with my arms folded in a protective posture. I am surrendering myself to the Lord, opening my heart to his grace. I am lifting up my soul to the glory of his presence. I am reaching out to him for help. You know, you, you think about all the different ways that this, this simple posture can symbolize such meaningful things. It's a beautiful posture that has served my soul well in worship, and in prayer. But just in case people get the impression that posture is all that matters, Paul adds that God's not just looking for the lifting of hands. He's looking for the lifting of holy hands. Holy hands. In the Old Testament, clean hands were a symbol of a pure heart. When the priests would prepare to enter the tabernacle for their ceremonial duties, they would undergo a ceremonial washing of their hands. When someone was found slain out in the countryside, and the elders of the city closest by go out and find this, this man who has been slaughtered, they are to wash their hands. They, they, they have an atoning sacrifice, and then they wash their hands to communicate to the Lord that they are innocent of this man's blood. Paul's saying that we can't just approach God with the right posture. He's saying we must approach God with the right purity of heart. God cares more about what we look like on the inside than on the outside. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about what we do with our bodies. We are still lifting up holy hands. But those, if those hands are not holy, then the lifting of hands is meaningless. 
Psalm 24, verses three and four says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. There are many things that can make a man's hands dirty, that make our hands unholy. But the thing Paul chooses to emphasize here in verse eight is anger and quarreling. Anger and quarreling. If you approach God harboring anger in your heart towards your brothers or sisters, you can't expect God to answer your prayers. Or if you're in the middle of a bitter quarrel with your wife, God may not heed your petitions. The purity of our hearts affects the power of our prayers. This isn't the only place that the Bible speaks about this. Proverbs 28 If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Psalm 66, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. 1 Peter chapter 3, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. My dear brothers, we must pray with holy hands, lifted up, without anger and without Quarreling, Because if our hands are dirty from bitter disagreements or if they are stained because of unrepentant sin, God will not answer our prayers. And that is why we so desperately need Christ. That is why we pray not in our own name, pleading our own merits, but we pray in Jesus' name. Because no man can approach God with a perfectly pure heart and clean hands. Hands, even our finest works are stained with sin. We may do the right thing, but we do it for the wrong reason. But Christ has died for our sins and cleansed us from all unrighteousness so that we can approach the throne of God with boldness, clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. You know, the only reason why we can lift up holy hands, why we can claim to have holy hands before God is because Christ's holy hands were pierced. The only reason why we can lift them up to God in prayer is because Christ was lifted up on the cross. Christ and Christ alone makes it possible for us to approach God without fear of condemnation or rejection. And so let us repent of our sins of anger and quarreling. And let us trust in Christ that we may truly lift up holy hands in prayer. That's what God has to say to the men in our church. He says, boys, I want you to be men of prayer. I wonder, is that what you want to be known for? What is it about your reputation that matters most to you? As you think about the legacy that you want to leave at the end of your life, what do you want that legacy to be? Is it that you are good at your job or that you are a faithful provider for your family? Or is it that you were a man of prayer? Fathers, I wonder, what are we teaching our sons to value? Are we teaching them that hard work is the most important virtue or personal integrity or moral purity? Those are all good things, but none of them are better than prayer. If someone were to look at your schedule 
or the ways that you spend time with your sons or the kinds of extracurriculars you put them in to take up their time, what would they conclude about the values you're trying to pass on to them? It doesn't mean that we're supposed to have prayer meetings seven evenings a week. But we do need to ask ourselves a question. Would, would prayer factor in at all as one of the values that we're trying to pass on to our sons? Men, we are all on a journey of learning what it means to love what God loves. And God loves prayer. He wants men in every place to pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. He wants us to pray and he wants us to teach the next generation of men to pray as well. Because that is what is good and pleasing in the sight of God. That is God's word to his sons. Boys, I want you to be known for your devotion to prayer. And now as we transition to verses 9 and 10, our Heavenly Father turns his attention to his precious daughters. And he says, girls, I want you to be known for your good works. I want you to be known for your good works. That leads to our second point, the good works of godly women. Verses 9 and 10 are clearly about the struggle with vanity, with spending excessive attention, resources, time on how you look. These verses are directed to women, but they don't don't just apply to women because men can struggle with vanity as well. Men can flaunt their bodies. Men can spend excessive amounts of money on designer, designer clothing. Men can care more about toning their bodies than tuning their hearts to Christ. Vanity is a gender neutral vice. And that's especially true in a generation like ours, which is the generation of the visual spectacle. Our eyes are being constantly bombarded by the images of people whom the world sees as beautiful. We see them in films and TV shows. We see them in commercials. We see them even in the broadcast booths of sports arenas. We see them in targeted ads on our phones. Everywhere we look, there are beautiful people who make the rest of us look and feel plain. But when we see those kinds of people receive the admiration and attention of the world, we can't help but think, well, they must be more valuable than me. They must be worth more than me. And if I want to be valued like them, I need to look like them. And so people rush to the latest fashion trends or hairstyles or revolutionary diets so that we can all feel a little bit better about ourselves. Well, this kind of comparison is not new. What the, 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 the scope of the temptation may be greater because of the, the level of visual bombardment that we face, but this is a struggle that has existed as long as creation has existed. Paul's talking about this kind of struggle in verse 9, when Paul specifies that women are not to adorn themselves with braided hair and gold or pearls, or pearls. I don't know what I'm saying, perils, perils. Uh, You can see what I'm thinking about these days, the perils that face our faith. Pearls, braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. You know, Paul's not against any of these things per se. You know, there's hope for Princess Elsa. He's not against braids. I I like braids. If you wear a braid to church, I'll commend you for it. he's, He's against what these things worn together symbolized. 
Historical studies show us that pop culture icons of the first century Roman Empire were dressing precisely in this manner. Their hair was in these elaborate braids heaped up in towers on their heads and adorned with gold and and pearls, not perils, and jewels. And, and they were walking around flaunting that hairstyle and dressing in, in beautiful, costly attire. And one of the characteristics about these first century pop culture icons was that they were committed to sexual liberation and excess. So when Paul says, don't adorn yourselves with braided hair and gold or pearls or, pearls or costly attire, he's saying, he's saying essentially, don't dress like the promiscuous pop stars. Don't try to look like them because it's sending the wrong message. Now, every generation thinks it's unique, but we're really all the same. In Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse nine says, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. This, this struggle is the same struggle of the first century women in the Ephesian church. The struggle to want to be beautiful and therefore valuable. It's a struggle that has existed for men and women, young and old, but it has been especially difficult for women. And that's why God addresses women specifically on this issue in verses nine and 10. He knows that women are particularly vulnerable to believing the lie that their value is tied to their appearance, to believe the lie that their looks dictate their worth. But God is saying, you're not valuable because of what you do to make yourself beautiful. You're valuable because of what I have done to make you beautiful. That is what verses five and six were about. We remember the context. We don't read these verses out of context. Verses five and six were about the glorious gospel of the one God and the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. We're so familiar with these verses that we let them just skim over our heads. But we think about what they mean and what they say about our worth in God's eyes. That, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the eternal Son of God would give himself to ransom you and to bring you back to himself. In Christ, you are not just worth a king's ransom. You are worth the king himself. And that is why you are beautiful and precious to God. And if you are precious to God, then you don't need to be seen as precious to anyone else. It is these truths of the gospel that free us to obey the instructions in verses nine and 10. The gospel is the key to modesty. The gospel is the key to modesty because these verses aren't ultimately about clothing. They're about where you find your value. If it's in your looks or in your physique or in how much people notice you, you're not gonna be able to live by these verses. You'll get these verses, you know, dress in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control and you're gonna forget that they even exist in the Bible. You're gonna keep doing what you've always done. You're going to dress to impress because when you don't impress, you don't feel very impressive at all. The gospel frees you from that lie so that when you're at the shopping mall thinking about buying a new outfit, you're not thinking about buying what reveals. You're thinking about buying what's respectable. 
You're not thinking about what's going to draw the attention of men. You're thinking about what's going to please your heavenly father. When you're thinking about what to wear, you're not trying to excel in self-glorification. You're trying to excel in self-control. And that is a remarkable concept to apply to the whole area of fashion and beauty. Self-control. I could wear this. I would look pretty good in it. I'm speaking hypothetically. I'm not talking about myself. I, I, don't, I don't go through these exercises. I, I rarely shop for myself. Um, but, but, but thinking, I, everybody's wearing this. Everybody's wearing it. And I look pretty good in it, but I'm not going to wear it. Instead, I'm going to choose something more modest. That is radical. Who says that these days? I'm out shopping to find something modest. It makes no, no sense in the eyes of the world, but God sees decisions like that and he smiles because he sees that you're finally beginning to understand that how much you're worth has nothing to do with how good you look. Now, Paul ends this instruction in verse 10 with a word on what it truly means to look good, what it truly means to adorn yourself as a Christian. He says that Christian women are to adorn themselves with what is, what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul's making it unmistakably clear here that these verses are not ultimately about clothing. If they were about clothing, verse 10 would be unnecessary because he's already spoken about what people are to wear, what women are to wear, wear what is respectable, modest, and what reflects self-control. But he adds verse 10. What is proper for women? Adorn yourselves with this if you profess godliness. Adorn yourselves with good works. This kind of beauty is far greater than any beauty you could get from nature or from jewelry or from clothing. You know, if we put things in perspective, this moment in time, in the eternal perspective of of God's redemptive plans, all of that beauty is going to fade with time. Faces and physiques will rot. Clothing will be worn away by moths. Jewelry will rust away. But this beauty, this beauty that is committed to doing good, to good works, this beauty is imperishable. It will last forever. But what what are these good works? What what does it mean to devote yourselves to good works, to adorn yourselves with good works? Well, Paul actually talks about this a little bit in chapter five. The context is he's talking about widows who have lost their husbands and who are being considered to uh, enroll in a list of widows who are gonna receive financial support from the church. And Paul is setting out the qualifications for these women to join this list. And this is what he says. He says, they are to have a reputation for good works. Okay, there we have the concept again, good works. What does that look like? If she has brought up children. If she has brought up children. If she has shown hospitality. If she has washed the feet of the saints. If she has cared for the afflicted. If she has devoted herself to every good work. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. He kind of goes back to this general category of good works at the end of that verse. But this this gives us a good sampling of what it looks like to do good, to do good works. 
So ladies, do you want to be beautiful in a way that really matters in the eyes of God? Then look no further. Don't look to Google. Don't browse the magazine racks. Don't study the latest celebrity trends. Study the Bible's teaching on good works. Phil Riken says, these are God's beauty tips for women. These are God's beauty tips for women. I thank God that he has gifted our church with many lovely ladies. Ladies who are committed to their children. Ladies who show hospitality by welcoming strangers into their homes and lives. Ladies who aren't afraid to do the dirty work that often remains unrecognized and underappreciated. Ladies who care for those who are suffering and afflicted. Ladies, you may feel that the world has overlooked your good works, and perhaps it has, but God hasn't. God sees it all. He sees the cleaning up of diapers and the hugging and the burping and the, the sleep schedules and the, the poop that's lying on the ground. He sees what you do to serve that young person who is struggling in their home lives and you welcome them into your home. He, he sees it. And, and this one, the one who pronounced all creation to be good, looks upon your works and says, that is, that is good. That is good. You may feel that you could never be beautiful in the eyes of the world, and perhaps you can't. But God looks upon all that you are trying to do for the glory of his name and says, you are beautiful, my precious daughter. True beauty is found not in what one wears, but in what one does for the Lord. It's found in good works, not in good looks. That's the kind of beauty that pleases God, and that's the kind of beauty that will last. And so do you have this kind of beauty? Do you value good works over good looks? Those may be difficult questions for you to answer for yourself. To help you diagnose your true beauty, Philip Ryken writes this. He encourages women to ask themselves these questions. How much money do I spend on my appearance? on clothes, jewelry, cosmetics, beauty treatments, and the like. And I think you could probably add you know, gym memberships and you know, things that will shape your body the way that you want it to look. How does that compare with my giving to the Lord's work? Another set of questions. How much, do I, how much time do I spend in front of the mirror? And how much time do I spend on my knees? When a Christian woman does look in the mirror, listen to this, she should look for good works. She should look for good works, which are the proof of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you may look into the mirror of good works and not see very much. If you're honest with yourself, you're more concerned with how other people are serving you than how you can serve others. If that's you, then then God's word to you today isn't just, you need to do more, you need to add to the list of good works that are before my eyes. That's not his word. His word is, come to me. Let me change your heart. Let me make you beautiful in my image. Only the gospel can free you from living for yourself. Only the gospel can free you from the vice of vanity. Come to Christ, know his love, and you will find your love for others grow as well. Some of you may have a different problem. 
You actually see a lot of good works in the mirror of good works, but they just don't matter very much to you. Or they don't overshadow all the things about your physical appearance that bother you and make you feel ugly. You're heavier than you want to be, or you're a few sizes larger than you used to be, and you just can't get over it. You can't get over this part or that part of your body because those parts make you feel ugly. Well, my dear sister, if that is you, you may feel that what you need is a radical diet or a new workout routine, but what you really need is fresh faith to believe God's word, to believe his promises. Fresh faith to believe that good works outshine good looks. That as your life carries on and as your years slip by, to believe that what you did in life was more important than how you looked when you were doing it. The wonderful thing about this is that we, you don't have to do this alone. This isn't just something that's exclusively your responsibility. We can help each other change the way that we see and appreciate true beauty. So a word to husbands. Husbands, do you only tell your wife that she's beautiful when she's glammed up for a night out? Or do you tell her that she's beautiful as she pours out her life and energy for those around her? Whether it's her kids, or whether it's the church, or whether it's the afflicted. Fathers, how do you speak to your daughters? Do you only compliment them when they're wearing a cute outfit? Or do you compliment them when they go out of their way to serve those around them? I, I was feeling convicted of this. And Lily may have noticed, you know, this morning and earlier this week, just going out of my way to say, not just I'm proud of you for serving your brothers, but you are beautiful because you are serving your brothers. My daughter is a beautiful girl not because of how she looks, though she is very cute, but because of how she serves other people. Young men, who do you spend your time giving your attention to? When you come to church or you go to school, who are you looking out for? Who would you wish was on your arm? Is it the outgoing, attractive young woman who always seems to have a group of people around her? Or is it the, perhaps, when you're in church and you see the older woman whose youthful beauty has faded away but who spends herself day after day, week after week, tirelessly doing good to the people around her, that's the one who is truly beautiful. But do we see them as such? Philip Ryken again writes, a woman who is beautiful in the sight of God ought to be beautiful in the eyes of godly men. Brothers, we can help our precious sisters believe what is truly beautiful. To look to those who are devoted to good works and not to good looks and to affirm them, to express our appreciation for them, to go out of our way, to honor them, to lift them up as examples for us to follow. Let us not love what the world loves. What the world loves is vain and passing and fleeting and will not last. God's people love what lasts and what lasts is good works done for the glory of our great God and Savior. Let's pray together.
Father, how desperately we need to hear these words in your word for men to be committed to prayer and for women to be committed to good works. Both committed to both, obviously, but we, we want to heed your word today and excel in these areas. Thank you that Christ has made it possible for us to become people like this in not only giving us new instructions, but giving us new hearts. And uh, we pray that uh, our church will be full of people who are devoted to prayer and to good works, to the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.